Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we just start off, as I usually do, if you just want to introduce your book and then talk a little bit about yourself. Uh, my book is Earth AD, The Poisoning of the American Landscape and the Communities That Have Fought Back. It came out in 2020, so I haven't been talking about it so much. Um, it's, a, it's a book that's an oral history that profiles two environmental disasters, one in rural Oklahoma and one here in Brooklyn, New York. And um, so that was, that was, I guess, going on three years ago now. So I, I'm in the middle of doing another oral history on, a, it's a way different thing. It's about the veterans of the movie industry where I work, um, just getting all those great old, old stories from, you know, like The Exorcist and um, Very The cool. French Connection, all that stuff. It's, I, I kind of grew up around a lot of these stories and uh, I love them. Well, in terms of in terms of Earth AD, I mean, unfortunately, this is a topic that is never not timely. And and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is kind of in the wake of the East Palestine disaster. Um, it's been something that has most certainly been on people's minds again, unfortunately. Uh, also, in a sense, the war in Ukraine, you know, uh, combat around nuclear facilities, things like this. Um, so I, I wanted to hopefully focus on the on Earth AD. Yeah, happy to. Um, I could talk about this horrible, this horrible shit all the time. Okay. Um, I, I, I think about it often, you know, and not just say really climate change a lot, but environmental disasters are something that always interested me. Um, so Earth AD is a kind of, um, I I don't want to say like roundup, but it's a, it's a look at ongoing environmental disasters. it. It profiles two of them. Um, I don't. I'm not an expert in all. It, it, I'm not an expert really in anything, but the. Um, but I certainly spent a lot of time with the people who uh, who endured these these two specific environmental disasters, and I profiled them because they were so different. One was in a red state, one was in a blue state, but they had a lot of similarities. Sort of like the way policy is approached from those two different political ways. And these were both uh, legacy disasters, spills. Um, one was a mine, one was mining. So anyway, the East Palestine 
thing. I, I followed that pretty closely because it, it's very similar. Like, you know, when you read, when I read, I don't know, there was like 43,000, the, the, the EPA, I mean, you can't always believe what they say, but it was 43,000 dead animals. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah, that, it is. So, so the two disasters that you profiled, I'm really interested in talking about those, um, not necessarily in terms of the details, but I think what you just touched on there with the difference in how those were handled in red and blue states, that's very interesting uh, and kind of cuts to the heart of things. So these were Tar Creek and Newtown Creek in Brooklyn. So maybe if you want to mention yeah. what these disasters were and, and real quick, just a little bit about your back. You're a documentary filmmaker. Is that correct? And, and that's, yeah, yeah. Kind of I've done, uh, yeah, I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of things like, um, I've done that. And now I'm mostly into oral histories because they're documentary without all the bullshit fundraising, you know, oh, like okay. yeah. I kind of hate all that part of it. And, you know, I got some other documentaries I'm going to make. I just, you know, and I have a few shot. I just, um, I'm just doing this now and each thing takes so long to do. Yeah. It's kind of podcasts are kind of oral histories in a, in a sense, although usually very published by people. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. In fact, you know, it's kind of mostly what I listen to when I walk around and go to the subway and, you know, and, and work, you know, they're, they're real documents of it. They're amazing that we have them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It gives people a forum to tell their stories and people's stories are always so long, complex, convoluted and, and non-linear and often nonsensical that you really cannot boil down the human experience, I think, into, you know, a soundbite on the news or a three act movie, something like that. So. Yeah. And they're, the looseness, it's, they're like free jazz in a way you can kind of go off on a tangent and the tangent could be very important. Yeah. Um, to what you're talking about, even if it doesn't seem like it's important. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they, they capture real life. They capture how people actually communicate. So yeah, very much. So it is documentary, you know, it is, uh, and, and it's journalism. I just was reading about a suit. I don't, I don't know the details of the suit, but like it, it the people are going to now be kind of held accountable to things they say in podcasts of sort Wait, of what? effort at misinformation. What, what, yeah, what? I'll, I'll send you a link when we no, get off. No, really, no, 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 <laughs> no. There, there's That's a horrible, there's a, there's a little bit of political movement about like misinformation and that like, you know, people, especially when, when, you know, at the level of like the Joe Rogan podcast where people are talking about, yeah. you know, the, 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 the vaccine. Scenes and that sort of thing. People trying to corral Joe Rogan because he's their new. He might be their yeah he, he yeah he might be their bad. I I don't I don't know what I don't really know the details. But I was thinking, how would you do that? It's like yeah, that's very concerned. Well, I mean, look, I mean, like obviously, slander and libel law covers everything. So I don't I don't understand why there would need to be additional. You know, and just I, I, this is a tangent. I mean, the idea of as they were proposing like a misinformation act or like a department of, of uh, ministry of misinformation or whatever they were calling it, there is no universe in which that's okay. Uh, and, and the thing about podcasts that makes them so special is they're kind of the last frontier. Well, they're a new frontier, but they're also currently the last and perhaps only frontier of, of un, you know, unfiltered speech. So yeah. radio is not, uh, TV is not, the internet, social media is not, uh, but podcasts are. And I think one of the reasons for that is that they're not indexable and searchable by Google. Uh, that mm -hmm. may change with, with, you know, AI transcription, but, um, 
you know, YouTube is policed, but podcasts are not policed. There's no central platform on which they're distributed. So I guess people can be thrown off the Apple store or whatever, or Spotify, but that's uh podcasts need to be left alone. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a very liberal guy and I, I remember being a kid. I think we're about the same age that like being a kid in the eighties, it was the right wingers that were into censorship, you know, yeah. I mean, it's my side that's into censorship and it's kind of fucked up and I don't like it. It's very fucked up. Do you remember if we're about the same age, do you remember the comic book legal defense fund in the mm-hmm. early Yeah. There was this really, really famous, uh, high profile, well, famous, you know, infamous perhaps in the underground, um, legal case, a guy named Mike Diana who had a zine called Boyle. Oh yeah. 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 I remember, I remember him. Yeah. He lives in New York now. I saw him once in the East village. Um, but it was this, you know, he was just this kid who did this totally deranged scene and, um, he got, I think he got thrown in jail or something like that. It's like, they really came down on them and down on him. And then there was this kind of, um, pro bono legal concern thrown together called the comic book legal defense fund that like all the big comic creators were supporting. And it was like all over, you know, wizard magazine and all things like this. And it was kind of like seen as the cool thing to be into. Um, and there was a really famous image that, um, I think Frank Miller drew of, somebody covering up uh somebody's uh you know of a person having their their eyes and mouth covered up with band-aids so they can't see or speak um and, and that was that was and you know it's like that was kind of the gen x ethos you know and, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah what the, what the hell so i haven't seen, i know that i think bill lustig or someone like that did a documentary about him i haven't seen it um about mike diana that'd be but, interesting um yeah, like, and then all this stuff is forgotten now Anyways, um, yeah, that's, that's one of those tangents we were talking about. So yeah, yeah. There, there's, there, there's two environmental disasters. You know, there's so many to choose from. I remember when I was getting ready to do the book and I was like, what do I choose? Like, it's like, so you just start reading and I was interviewing people who interested me in the, in the environmental movement, you know, water rights people and just say, like, all that stuff really got to me, you know, having kids too. And I was like, so crazy that we just don't really we, as a society we don't value the environment like we should and that seems very obvious but it seems important stating um so i became very interested in these two different environmental disasters the one in oklahoma is called tar creek and it was a mining town from mining there's a mining boom there it was lead mining from like the 1900s till about the six to early 1900s till about the 60s and then the they just mined the shit out of it till there's nothing left. And so there was there so the town was not only sinking, but there was lead everywhere. They put lead it, obviously like in the paint, but in the gravel, in the stream, in the in the concrete. It was like this mine tailings. It was like the leftover rock from from mining lead. And there's just piles of it. They were like they were described as like moonscapes, like if you'd see it from an airplane. And there's just, so there was years and years of battles, just like trying to figure out what are we going to do with all these people once they were recognized politically, but not having any real power, sort of, they, they weren't prioritized by the government over there at the national. And they then eventually got on the EPA national priorities list and became one of the biggest Superfund sites in the world. There was a media frenzy and all this stuff. And then they just, the media- just for those who may not know, what is a Superfund site? It's it's a law. It was a law that was created in 1980 called CERCLA. CERCLA stands for um, Comprehensive Environmental Response and Liability Act. And it was a law passed in 1980 as a way for 
the EPA to deal with um, hardcore pollution sites. I don't remember what case kind of sparked it, but there's a list and there's like, as of now, there's like, I don't know, something like 1,300 locations on it. And those are those qualify for national funding. So a certain amount of money is put aside um, for the EPA to either remediate, move people, um, do legislation, um, prosecute, all kinds of stuff. So this site, this site was this site was one of the earliest ones in the '80s to be named because it was so, like so outrageous. And then the other one is here in Brooklyn. I I picked it because it was nearby. It's called um, Newtown Creek, and I lived is in Greenpoint. Is that, Green, is that Greenpoint? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is that like, cause I remember when I lived there, people were saying there was like an oil slick underneath Greenpoint or something like that. I exactly. Exactly. And there were oil tankers there. There were a lot of fires that, that led to these tankers leaking, but there was like, um, they, there was leaking. I forgot, but it was like more than, more than the Exxon Valdez spill underneath Greenpoint. And this became very interesting to me because I lived there for, I don't know, like 15 years or something. It was, all kinds of um there was there was a lot of uh there was a lot of talk of it but he didn't really like know anyone don't really know where it was or anything and then the gentrification hit and then the activism really took it really took on another life in 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 contrast to the people in tar creek where they didn't have gentrification they didn't weren't around any kind of real power like that so i, I became very interested in the sort of class the class warfare response in a way, you know? Oh, but, interesting. Yeah. Same, say more about that. Like how, how this is a class, how class plays into this. Well, I mean, I was thinking about, I was thinking about this in East Palestine. East Palestine had, has this, um, you know, these, these trains moving through it and these trains, these train tracks, I, I think they do move through some rich neighborhoods, but not really. They mostly move through poor neighborhoods. These these places are drawn up in such a way, and you know this this probably has something to do with gerrymandering. I don't really know, but the the way towns are drawn up, industry lives by poor people. I mean, there's this idea of a you know Robert Doctor Ballard did this wonderful work on environmental racism. Uh, um, so Tar Creek, you know, in Oklahoma is a great example of this because th that was on Native American land and the Native Americans had had sold their land to a lot of homesteaders and white miners and um, but a lot of them still held on to it. And so there was a tribal sort of response. There was they, they were sort of ignored because they were on tribal land, you know, um, for a long time. Despite pleas, you know, you hear about it today with with water rights in the native communities, and so there is there is a, there's a huge element of class, and that's why the also like is also making me think of redlining and issues with with uh, lead paint and things like that, and and kids growing up near freeways, and and uh, you know, I, I do think that people like to uh, people particularly on the right like to mock how overplayed perhaps racism is and it's like oh everything's racist but like look i mean yeah everything is racist <laughs> you know it's like yeah they're like environmental they're, yeah. structural racism and and redlining and things like that are, are pretty effing real and tangible and, and and horrible that's right that's right and like so there there will be a sort of straw man argument with culture we're bullshit right you know they'll they, they use the sort of distracting 
sort of stories about identity politics or whatever. And that that's very real stuff. And now they're doing it with trans rights, trying to, you know, you know, distract bathrooms and stuff like that, just being, you know, bigots in that direction. But the racist element is very alive still. And you see it play out in the environmental sphere. And um, so the, when the gentrification moved into Greenpoint, to Brooklyn, and the same thing down in Gowanus Canal, um, which is also in Greenpoint, but I mean, in Brooklyn, but it's more on the southern, it's more south, you know, uh, Newtown Creek divides Queens from Brooklyn at the northern end. So it's like a natural waterway. And I've, I've been in a boat a couple of times going up and down it. It's fascinating because you, and, and there's these river watchers who just keep an eye on things, make sure no one's dumping, you know? Uh, there was, there used to be like, and, and it wasn't just oil. There was, Greenpoint also had a, had a, it was like they had a dry cleaner that was leaking. They had a plastics factory that was leaking phthalates into the ground underneath a playground. And this went on for decades. And there was also another one that was like a dry cleaning. They call these brownfields. And they're all over, they're all over the city. They're like these places that used to have heavy industry and have moved away, but their footprint is still there. So, you know, you end up, one of the ways they figured out in Greenpoint, what was happening, that there were these blocks where everyone got these rare um, brain cancers. And it, it was kind of like, eventually the people was like, they put it together. Like we all live above this plume under the ground of dry cleaning, uh, no, not, not that one, the phthalates, the, mm. um, the leaking plastics. So, you know, so th that is very real. In, in closing, yes, the, the racist element and the class element is all there. And, and this thing in New Palestine is the same thing. These were all poor, poor white people. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that has struck me about the things, the disasters you're talking about and um, several other ones that I've you know, read about or have personal experience with is how little people know about or and how pe how little people are allowed to know about, for instance, dumping grounds or the extent of environmental corruption. And, you know, we mentioned the culture war. I'm sure we're going to kind of go back to that uh, as a reference point uh, and as a distraction. And of course, the focus is always on global warming. And of course, they're still having this ridiculous debate of whether global warming is real or not. Um, but global warming is also, a, you know, a convenient, um, obviously it's real, but it's also a convenient focal point. Um, when you really look at the environment, you realize you're like looking into like this, you know, levels of Dante's Inferno of the things that have been done. I mean, just in America, because I really only know, uh, you know, I'm most familiar with, with America, although a lot of the other world, a lot of the rest of the world as well, but mostly America how little the government has allowed people to know about what not only what's done in their name, but the extent of of what's around them, what they're breathing, what they're drinking. You know, Flint. You know, the the water in Flint, Michigan, is another example. Yeah, and and until something very theatrical happens for the media, in this case, it was like the controlled in in Palestine, East Palestine, it was like controlled. What they call it, the controlled release. Um, the controlled burn when they were like, when they were like, okay, this thing might blow up. So we're going to do what's called a controlled release to, of the chemical. So it's a sort of like, you know, this ominous black cloud that was like that 
you know, people are just taking videos of their phones with and they're like, why isn't this the story of the moment? Like, you know, and I remember looking at like the front page of the times on the, on the, the homepage and it wasn't like the lead story. It was like something about, I remember it was something about inflation reports mm-hmm. and it was like, are you, you know, and it, I think it took this theatrical black cr- cloud. Like if it was like a controlled release and maybe like you didn't see it, like it was just like one of the, you know, an invisible gas and it wasn't like a burn. I don't know if it would have got the attention because it took a while for that to get traction. Even the way it looked, there was a visual wow. component that was People very, were very angry about that at the time that it was, yeah. that was something visually dramatic and, and yet it still was not getting covered. Yeah. And, and like you said, we only really know know about the stuff in, in the U S because it's, it's what we probably most access to, but you know, there, there's, that's just the thing, right? We don't know all of what's going on in the world. How could you? There's no possible way to know all the pollution sites going on. There's, there's this wonderful book by, um, what's that, the, that journalist, David Call, Stephen Call. He did the book about ExxonMobil. And, and they pretty much operated like a nation state, you know, moving into different countries, um, leaving these huge footprints, these huge disaster areas everywhere they went, you know? They mine or whatever, pump oil out of the ground, and then just leave. Yeah, one of it. it, I mean, it's disturbing to think about one of the real, one of the things about environmental corruption. um, I'm not sure I even like the word pollution anymore because it just kind of like brings up cartoony images of smokestacks. It really does not suggest the extent of it. But the um, the thing about environmental corruption is it's not it's not dramatic. It's like, you know, a slow burning radioactive uh, isotope or something in the groundwater. It's like by definition, it's the invisible killer. Yes. And so that you're that, not that, going to get something to put on the news. You're just you're going to get like, sl- you know, like a slow build in cancer rates over decades. Exactly. And this happened in Tar Creek where the where the, the once the media caught wind of this like outrageous environmental disaster. And um, the the media came in the 90s and it became a hot story for a minute. And the people who lived there were telling me that the reporters came in, they came in for a few weeks, got their stories, and then they left, you know. And meanwhile, this played out for generations. I mean, this was like a town that they were, you know, they were kind of ignored, but they had like a really good governor at one time who was a Republican. Um Frank Keating, and he really cared about it. He saw he saw a story on the front page of their local paper, and he's like, "How is this happening in in our state? We have to do something." And he actually did. You know, he was one of the guys who put it on the map, and he really he really took it to the he really took it to the to the people, and just like we have to do something about this. And then that's when the idea is about moving all of these people out of their towns, and a lot of people don't want to give up their land, their homes. I mean, that's a very delicate thing to do. Yeah. Um, when I went there, there was still like, I drove through there and they were telling me you had to be careful. The other part of this is that the town was caving in. So there was this, not only like, was the water like bright red from like, f- from metals and, the, you know, the, this like lead poisoning, the town was actually caving in here and there because the mines were empty. And so if you have like ground, just like a, a town on empty land, and it was a bunch of little towns. Um that all had the same problem, but one was particularly caving in. And that's, that's really scary shit. Like that you could just be in the middle of the night. Your, your whole house could just get swallowed up by the earth. Yeah, That was, <laughs> that was just the impetus to move them. Right. 
Yeah. And that, uh, that, so that was, and of course, you know, like I said before, this, the, the idea of class and, 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 and race and all this stuff comes up often because it just seems to be the same story over and over again. But this is became very interesting to me. Does that, um, that is interesting. Um, do you know about Santa Susana field lab? No, what's that? Okay. Let's check this out. This, this utterly blew my mind. So in 2020, uh, in when COVID was going on, I was living in Los Angeles and I was living in Glendale, which is like the, at that point was the epicenter of the epicenter of COVID. And we were trying to get out to just like everyone else. <clears throat> I think everyone else in the U S trying to get out somewhere <clears throat> out of urban centers or, you know, maybe like find a, a larger place somewhere where, you know, we could telecommute or work remotely. Um, and that was very hard to do in Los Angeles. And then I ended up finding a house that was available for rent in Woodland Hills or like West West Hills, which is like way West of the Valley. It's actually next to spawn the, the infamous spawn ranch where oh, wow. Charles Manson stuff went down and mm. I went out there and there was like this beautiful house next to this beautiful park. And in this beautiful suburban neighborhood, quiet, you know, lots of, it was practically the desert rock coyotes walking around. I'm like, this is perfect. This is wonderful. And so I was in, um, in progress of signing paperwork to rent this house. And then the night before moving in, I just looked up the neighborhood on Wikipedia and it turns out that it is the, this house was right at the foothills of a river that runs from Santa Susana field lab. So Santa Susana field lab was a nuclear test site uh, or a, a new like a new they were working on nuclear reactors there in the 50s um for uh, the u.s government and it turns out that that spot in west la it's right it's right to the east of thousand oaks is the worst nuclear spill site or the worst nuclear disaster site in the world after chernobyl and nobody knows about it and apparently what happened was um, there was a nuclear, a literal nuclear meltdown and they had in the fifties and they had to expose a melted down nuclear core and just like, um, East Palestine vented and that vented out over the entire, uh, San Fernando Valley. And apparently the, you know, scientists or the technicians that were, you know, were told to do this, were venting it over their own families in, in, in many cases, but this was covered up until for 20 years. And the exposed nuclear material is like still there, or at least was there until recently. I think that um, the government sold it to Boeing or something like that. And Boeing promised to clean it up, but they haven't. I think they're going to turn it into like a kid's park and it hasn't been cleaned up. And all this runoff was going down from there into um, West Hills. It was going out down into Thousand Oaks. So then I started looking that, that up. And lo and behold, over the last 50 years, there have been stratospheric numbers of like rare ocular cancers and things like that. And people under seven years old, all the people that grew up there, I've since talked to people who've been affected by that. Uh, and, and no one was allowed to know about it. And this is in Los Angeles. I mean, it's like a Chernobyl level meltdown in Los that's, Angeles. That's amazing. Like, no one knows about it. And there's like one NPR report from 10 years ago. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> fucking crazy like horrible yeah that that speaks to your point about how little we know about it like you know i was pretty in the weeds on this stuff for a few years and i i may have like just found this one in passing and didn't stick or i'd never heard of it because no it's, it's not i mean i grew up in southern california deal. 
I grew up in Southern California and neither I nor anyone I know or have ever talked to other than a few people who actually lived in the area and were affected by it have ever heard about this. What do you think, what do you think makes that so successful as a cover up, right? Like, I mean, there, I can think a little conspiratorially about it. Obviously, it's not something that, you know, that, that, that people involved in it would want to talk about. But why didn't it become a bigger deal? And that is always interesting or not interesting. It kind of trivializes a little bit, but it, it, it's something I think about a lot. Like, how come these things are not a bigger deal than they are? Is it like, is it like too big to deal with? Like, is it like do people just shut down after a certain point? Like climate change, right? It's like, yeah, climate change is definitely, that's the case. It's just people are like, what do I do? And then they just shut too, down. It's too much. I mean, what literally it's too, do you it's do? It's too big. Yeah. So um, I think in this case, a big part of it was that it happened in the 50s and nobody really cared in the 50s uh, or had a sense of how big of a deal that was. I mean, this was this only got started. This The only reason people started to to become aware of this was it was after Silent Spring was published by Rachel mm. began to draw attention to this. It's just people. It's just not something people it's like smoking or something like that. It's not something that people's attention was on at that time. And then in this case, they it was they were told not to talk about it for twenty years, and so there was paperwork. Um, yeah, if I'm remembering but, correctly, but I, I think that it, it's part of it is just like the passage of time. People forget, or they never heard in the first place, and it's just kind of like nobody cares to look. You know, another thing is like you know who benefits from looking. It's like who's you know it's like there's too much money in you know, obviously all those real estate developers in that area, like for instance, I had to get out of that, that lease and the real estate company that was, um, uh, leasing it to me, you know, was denying the whole thing. They were saying, Oh, there's no problem. You know, I live here. My kids drink the water who, you know, there's no problem. And I had to really fight them on it to get out of the lease. So I think, you know, there's a lot of financial, um, I don't necessarily want to say financial incentive, but there's no financial incentive to making people aware of it. I think that's the case a lot of times. It's just like, you know, it's just the money thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's sort of the role of investigative journalism. But like, you know, yeah, I guess that's that's probably it. You know, the funny thing about that is like the fiction at the time had like this sort of fundamental outsized misunderstanding of nuclear and the sort of like post-World War, you know, uh, the fear of like the atomic age, right? Like there's all these like really great B movies with like, you know, um, attributing things to nuclear meltdowns that couldn't possibly happen. Yeah, yeah that's funny. You know, like yeah, mutating. Yeah that's, yeah, that's true. And so like that sort of, I'm surprised that that sort of, you know, that sort of fear of the unknown didn't like become even more outside somewhere like that. I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand, you know, like I think about this a lot, like, even here, you know, there's more oil under the ground. It's been, it's being cleaned up, but like, um, most people here in the city, they just, they don't know about it. You know, that everywhere we are was a site of industry unless, you know, it's just not, but a lot of, a lot of the city is built on it. And, you know, the strange sort of thing about all this stuff that, that came up a lot is that all of these energy extractions that in all of this mess came from people actually living a better life. They were able to um, have money like that. You think with the miners in Tar Creek that like they, they were able to like have a, a house and a middle class. And it's like a, it was sort of like the capitalist dream extract a lot of 
energy, resources. You pollute all you want and we'll all make money. Well, I think that's a big part of it too. And that's a big part of it now. And it's just like, you know, I think that there's a really powerful thing where people are saying like, yeah, like I don't want to be doing this. This is bad, but like my family has to eat. You know, it's like if I get laid off, you know, my kids are not going to be able to eat. And I think that's a powerful thing that holds people in place. Uh, you know, people who work for, you know, less than ethical scientific or corporate concerns now, or, you know, they're working for polluting companies or things like that. You know, they, they, I think they can, human beings are very good at compartmentalizing things or, or weighing things and saying like, you know, some version of, yeah, this is bad and I'm doing it, but if I don't do it, someone else will. And if I don't do it, my family's not going to eat. So, yeah. And, and I, my hands are not clean either. I mean, I work on a TV show that's on NBC and who knows what the fuck they're into. They right. used to be GE, you know? And so, I mean, I, I've completely compartmentalized it and, but I'm, I'm completely aware of the sort of hypocrisy in that. And, you know, I work on a show that maybe, maybe might not be good for, for, uh, society. And, but I mean, I'm just like in a labor union, I have certain protections and um and i mostly just spatter blood on walls and stuff you know and it, it's like fun i make like a like a ransom note or you know it's like the work i do so it's like you know i i i, I, can, I do look the other way too i think we all have to you know we all have to be a little hypocritical to live in the society that we're yeah. in yeah i i think that that's a really important point i mean no anyone who thinks that they're pure is feeling you know unless they're living in the woods and they're ted kaczynski or something like that you know it's like i think you're probably fooling yourself and um you know that's kind of the the the, the tricky trade-off with this thing i mean in the in the 2000s i i worked in in advertising but specifically doing green programs internal communication programs for companies and environmental messaging or as we now know it greenwashing so i worked doing greenwashing and i was very very well aware of the ethical compromises with that but to my mind the equation made sense because it's like well what's happening here is a new standard is being set and even if it's not perfectly followed at first you know it's like society is having this conversation corporations are having this conversation and at least we're moving the needle towards uh, where we want to go. And at the end of the day, it's up to the corporations to, you know, almost all the pollution is, is and environmental degradation. It's from corporations. So it's up to them to clean up their own act. And, you know, that's going to be a messy prog process always. I mean, just the way that corporations work, departments are always getting, you know, started and then downsized. And if a VP comes in, a VP goes out, you know, something falls in, in and out of fashion. So corporations are not monolithic entities their cultures as well. Um, so, but I think that just That's understanding that like nobody, not only are there not sides, it like the, the very nature of the environment see, is, is we're all in it. So we all have a stake in it and none of us, you know, we're, we're all corrupted, you know, it's the nature of corruption. Yeah. And then, you know, that that's all, that's all absolutely right. And I, I think so. And, and the, there's a sort of, there's a sort of us versus them mentality that um, seems to pervade the environmental movement, that this sort of a uh, perfect solution is there somewhere and uh, we just have to keep fighting for it. And while that is mostly true, there are people, you know, I've met a lot of these people too in, in TV who are actually concerned and trying to do something, trying to change the way this is. Like this is the, this is the I, I serve on my union sustainability committee as a member. 
And this is the criticism we always hear from like the other members who don't do anything. They're like, well, what are you doing over there? We're, you know, doing all these things and we don't know if they're working or what, but we're trying really hard to figure this out and how to make our business less wasteful because it's wildly wasteful. You know, at the end of the day, you could see a dumpster full of like wood from sets, hmm. paint, um, plastic bottles, just everything. Right. And, um, that's the sort of criticism I hear. And I'm just like, fuck off. Like, you're not really doing anything. We're like banging our heads against the wall trying to figure this thing out. Yes, we are like working with consultants. We are trying to work with the corporations to try to get them to change. But I, there's a, there's a real politic at play and it's not pure. It's, 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 it's very imperfect and it will continue to be. I think that that's a very important Um, I think that that's a very important part of of just having an adult understanding of the world and and certainly an important part of trying to get anything done. I mean, like if you talk to any politician, they'll tell you like politics is consensus building and there's all the nature of consensus is compromise on all sides. So it really, although like, look, I guess somebody, somebody has to hold out the, the, the absolutist extremist position on everything because otherwise you don't have like, you know, you don't have a reference point. So somebody has got to hold the reference point of what the ideal is, but in terms of actually conducting change towards that reference point, there's always got to be compromise. Yeah. And the radical position, like you said, is super important to everything. I mean, even in the arts, like, you know, I, I like a lot of very unlistenable music at times because I've mean, very always been very interested in the line, you know, um, lifestyles. It's all that is always going to be interesting to me. Whoever is pushing something furthest, it's always it, it's it's a position that is always going to be needed. Um, yeah. Even if you're not going to occupy it, like you said, it can be appreciated and um, it can be critical, uh, especially yeah. when you get to social issues like this. Um, then there's the people, I guess what I was addressing was the people who don't do anything and they just talk a bunch of shit online or um, that's less interesting. And I think that's less helpful and very juvenile. Yeah, it, it is. Um, one thing that I, I wanted to go back to is in in along those lines and also along the lines of kind of what you've been mentioning about class actually one second speaking of environmental degradation my dog has gotten all the cleaning uh uh <clears throat> scrubs out from under the sink and is trying to eat them <laughs> go ahead go handle it i'm i, I got time I'm... all right total chaos he, he there's a the official rule now is he interrupts every podcast at least once <laughs> <laughs> i've heard some of them where we're like the, the environment encro- encroaches in a little bit. And I, I like that. No, oh, okay. Uh, what, it's, it's a little cinema, cinema verite. Uh, you were, you're saying, uh, we were talking about the class, the class issue. Yeah. So kind of in regards to what you were just saying and the class issue and some of the stuff we mentioned earlier, I am very interested in how these types of things are handled in red versus blue states. And if there's a difference uh, or maybe less of a difference than people might think. I think it's the latter. I think that it, it's really about, it's less about the blue and the red than I, th- at the beginning, I thought it would, I thought the obvious find would be that, um, they're ignored in red states and, um, worked on a blue states. Um, well, it is true to some degree, like everything else, you know, that there's, there's degrees of it. Um, it really is d- depends a lot on the sort of activism community. And that's something that I didn't expect to find. 
that the, that activism works mm. um, in the long term. It doesn't pay dividends up front. It really like it's thankless, grueling sort of backstage work that isn't really seen until until it is. And it usually ends with some, like when it does work, it ends with someone committing to remediate the land. Like in the case of Tar Creek, it was like a very, you know, red state. You know, these are these are people who didn't really have anything. And then the the EPA hired a contractor to come in and remove the dirt. Okay, so they, they start to remove the lead from the dirt, right? This is just one of their fixes, right? One of the solutions, periods of where they were going through that they were going to do this. And the contractor they hired was taking dirty dirt, moving it somewhere else, then replacing it with like dirty, you know, lead dirt from somewhere else. Really cynical shit, like really nasty, right? Like, um, and I think it has less to do, I guess like my point is, is less to do with politics, like, um, the political realm at the national level and more at the local level. Um, and whether or not, not the financial stakeholders are still around. In some cases, you have pollution that can't be addressed because the company went bust 20 years ago. Yeah, so that, that I think is what went down with the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, where it just like kind of hot potato had been played. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, who do you hold accountable? There was a, actually that same year, there was a thing that came out where um, <clears throat> a company, this, yeah, like there was a news story that, that happened in 2020 in the middle of all the craziness that it turned out that um, I think this was the final straw on why I left LA. There was a company in the 50s or the 60s, I think it was the 60s, that was just dropping barrels of DDT off the coast of Catalina Island which is to the, you know, to the West of, uh, it's just off the coast of Los Angeles. Um, and that there were something like, uh, I don't know, like hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of just barrels of DDT sitting on the, the ocean floor, slowly corroding and leaking. And all that DDT was like just nonstop hitting the beach of Santa Barbara and also, um, you know, South Los Angeles, actually where Trump's golf course is in, in South Los Angeles. Um, and it's just like the, the environmental all let alone like the carcinogens, the death of, you know, just, I think there was like no sea life. They, they just sent us, they, you know, it was UC Santa Barbara had sent a submarine down there just on like a research thing. And they're like, wait, what the hell are all these bar barrels of DDT doing down here? And then they, they traced, you know, they looked at, I guess they, they figured out where it came from. And it was from this company in the sixties that went out, it's not no longer in business, you know? So it's like, well, who do you, you know, it was just some company out of, uh, you know, the, again, the Valley in Los Angeles, it's like, okay, well, like, who do you hold accountable? Like, you know, presumably the state of California should be paying to clean that up. But, um, and that's one of those, that's one of those things. I, yes, exactly. All that, a hundred percent. And I've seen this play out, you know, in this story and a few others where there's no one to sue. And that's a real, I'm, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm like a socialist or, or anything like that. I don't really understand enough about it to have like a real hardcore position, but I would say that this is a sort of a real obvious failing of capitalism mm -hmm. that obviously if there's no one to sue, that this whole thing isn't going to be paid yeah. for. Right. And somehow has to be paid for. Well, like the whole concept of money in this case seems ridiculous. Right? Yeah, it's like, like, the, the, like, yeah, the free market's going to fix that, you know? Like, right. Like, yeah. 
I mean, in theory, that's where the that's where the role of government should be to step in and curtail the abuses of of the market. Yeah, and instead of just like it, it, we spend all our money on theater, you know, like on prosecuting Trump, and then he just goes home to Mar-a-Lago at the end of the day, and nothing ever really happens. It's just like theater; it's bullshit. Like when, but when this stuff is actually happening to communities, you know, and they might not have the the they might not have the activist community in place. They might not, and who can even fight that? It's just so yeah. big. You who know? do you fight? Yeah, like you, you have to fight who the government to try to get them to help. Um, right. I mean, I guess like in a perfect world, that would be like the, you know, that could be a hobby horse for somebody seeking seeking public office, or you know, it's like people who are in public office should be in the protective role of, you know, in theory, I guess activists should bring that to their attention and and they should act on it, and that that's generally what happens sometimes. It's just that there's so many uh checks on or there's so many barriers to change actually happening yeah know? and people to get and the, you're right it is a hobby horse for some people to to make their way through the political spectrum but then you know and because the human nature they always end up being imperfect and the solution's always imperfect right so like you know you see this like people in the activist community becoming politicians because it seems like you know it's it's the only real way to change and that's depressing you know, that you have to include. Why is, why is it depressing? Well, it's depressing that you have to go through this slow process that isn't geared towards doing anything. So it's already inherently um, rigged to moving slow and and not responding to these things in the time. that You know what I mean? Like they sort of, they just go on and on and on from lawsuit yeah. to lawsuit. Yeah, yeah you know, to petitioning and all this stuff. And meanwhile, you could just be poisoned by your drinking water and don't even know it because you're not in the loop. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then if you take it further, I mean, like, what is the the half-life of DDT? It's like, what is the half-life of uh, your, you know, a nuclear spill? It's like, I mean, in, in that, in that regard, I mean, like the, no matter how slow the political process is, it's, it's the blink of an eye, but yeah, it's, you know, not cleaning stuff you know, not preventing something from happening in the first place is too slow. Well, this is that thing we were talking about earlier where like the cancer clusters don't come till 10, 20 years later, right. you know, um, my, my great aunt lived in Maricol on island and her and her husband, and I didn't know there was a spill there, you know, when I was a kid and they, you know, her and her husband both had this sort of rare, uh, lymphoma and that, that's, that's shocking to me, you know, that that could happen. I mean, still shocking, even though like I've known about it for so long. It is shocking. And, you know, you can bring pharmaceutical companies into it as well. I mean, you know, during whole covid covid thing i mean it's like you look up some of these companies and it's like what was it johnson and johnson was selling this baby powder talcum powder that caused you know ovarian cancer and like tens of thousands oh, yeah of and then they got busted for it so what did they do they just turned around and started selling it in the third world and if these are these are the companies we're trusting you know it's like what was it pfizer was like experimenting on children in africa without any type of uh, consent or anything like that and just doing these awful experiments it's like we're not talking about um um uh, i mean it's like part of me wants to say it's like oh well you know it's just the systems it's just like the nature of capital but like it gets to a point where it's like 
man, you almost want to believe that there are just like these like demon possessed, you know, monster people like behind the scenes running these things because it just gets so dark. Yeah. And you in, in your mind, you need to have something to push against. Right. It's like this. Uh, it, it, you kind of can understand conspiratorial thinking in that way, like um, because it, it's the evil is so outsized yeah. um, at times, especially when you involve children and pregnant women. Yeah. And, and my, my line on I mean, conspiracy, as you might imagine, conspiracy theory stuff comes up a lot on this show. Like my line on conspiracy theories is always like, you know, forget conspiracy theories, look at conspiracy fact. I mean, like, and I get so frustrated when people start going off on these like QAnon pizza, I'm a pizza, like David, I tangents where it's like, all you need to like, that is such a, a distraction and cop out. All you need to do is just get on Wikipedia and look yeah. at these companies yeah. have actually done. And there's more than enough. I promise you, there is more than enough cosmic horror in the truth. You don't need to go hog wild making stuff up. I mean, all you need, and none of this is hard to find. Go on Wikipedia, go to the public library, and all of these crimes are right out in the open for 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 you to see. And it's, it's people ignore them because it's too, you know, even during the vaccine, you know, during the the whole vaccination drive, people had to willfully ignore this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and we all got these shots, you know, we're not getting sick from COVID now. And it's in a lot of it has to do with, you know, these these drug companies like they're they're often made out to be these evil people. But they developed that vaccine in a year and that was a record time. And, you know, people are so terrified of it, you know, there's so, but they're politically engaged to be terrified with it. You know, and that's that's what's so weird. It's like they're like you said, there's so many. So again, these are very imperfect things. These are complicated, layered problems that that I, I, there's no yeah. easy way to talk about them. Like it's the the, the pharmaceuticals have issues. That you know, we're all you know we could we could talk about Exxon all day, but we all still like rely on the trucking industry. And, yeah, and it's like that's the thing. I mean, I, I I look at this stuff and it's it's something like you cannot you also can't divorce yourself from this. It's like. Yeah, these monstrous acts are being done, but they're being done in your name. And unless you want to become, you know, Ted Kaczynski or something like that, or just drop out and live, you live on the live in the woods, um, you're benefiting from these systems. You're benefiting, you know, if you're American, you you benefit from the crimes of the American empire. That's just how it is. And and so it's it's disingenuous to divorce yourself from from that system. It's like I'm sure you know the. Uh, that Kurt Weill song where he says, mankind is kept alive by bestial acts <laughs> or, or William Burroughs said, and naked, you know, the, the meaning of naked lunch is, you know, naked lunch is when everyone sees what's on the other end of their fork in one frozen instant in time. And it's like, that's the thing that people have to, I mean, that's the thing that people have to realize. And they also have to understand is why things don't change. It's because like these systems are in place for them. Yeah. And it's hard not to become a preacher, right? Like, you know, to, to keep that, that's the thing that could temper you from being a hardcore preacher to being like, you know, the sort of hypocrite, hypocriticism of all of it is really, you know, like, I don't eat meat, but I don't fucking tell anyone else what to do because I don't know what's right for them, you know? And I, I don't necessarily even, a lot of my friends probably don't even know that I don't eat meat. I don't really, like, I'm not a big foodie, so it doesn't really make a difference to me. And I, I think that, like, I, I don't want to be that guy, you know? I don't want to be the guy who's, you know, the, 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 the warrior, the, the war, the, right. the, the, 
you know, there is value to being a warrior and I just don't have it. I don't think, you know, I listen yeah, to your I, podcast, the angel and the law is a guy I, I know and I know angel and, you know, I love the idea of the poet warrior. And I think that's very beautiful and important, but it's very difficult for me because I, I'm too self-aware of the hypocriticism in my own self. Right. Well, that's kind of like that classic line of, you know, it's like, like, uh, like, good people are crippled by self-doubt or where evil people they have no such compunction <laughs> right right you know? so there's kind of an element of that to it but um yeah no i've thought about this a lot because i mean like well the number one thing here is like journalism has collapsed and so people are in the dark and they don't know what's happening and but I, when i was working a lot more in journalism like my thinking was like you know, I was constantly like writing these stories. I was writing about environmental, like oil spills and things like that for vice and environmental issues. Um, and I kind of got to this point where I'm like, okay, well, I'm researching these things and I feel good and I feel like I've done a good thing and they're going out into, you know, they're getting a lot of traction because they're on vice news, but it's like, well, what happens then? So I was like thinking about this, like, well, in theory, in a well-working society, journalists are supposed to surface the information. And then I suppose activists or politicians are supposed to pick it up and do something about it. But what's happening instead, because, well, first of all, there's the information's not coming out in the same way. Um, certainly, well, I would say information's coming out, but there's not things like year long investigative reports on things. There's no budget for that. You know, Buzzfeed shut down yesterday. You know, they did a lot, despite Buzzfeed being annoying, they did a lot of good investigative journalism. Yeah, they did. And, and, you know, they, 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 they realized that those, those, the stupid stuff was, uh, keeping the lights on, you know, yeah. That's that, always been the, that was the case in the 19th century with the press with so. Yeah, yeah the, and that's that's it. but you know I, I would disagree that journalism has collapsed. Um, I think there's excellent journalism being done all the time. I think we're just overburdened by there's so much of it. Um, my wife works at the New Yorker, and I see her working on these pieces as a copy editor, and I I listen in on her these meetings trying to figure out the right wording for this and that and it's like very it's it's like they're all trying to figure out the same thing which is like how to keep the lights on how to keep how to keep doing real journalism but while still getting the ad revenue clicks uh it's complicated like anything else you know very complicated i mean that's a very tough business and then then of course you can get into things like well you know, there's private funding like the intercept, but it's like, well, then how objective are you at that point? You know, if, if a, you know, some rich person is bankrolling, you know, it's how different is that from the Washington post with Jeff Bezos? So, um, it's, it's yeah. a one. Um, that was the thing about the, the, the East Palestine, you know, going back to that, that was like, who was reporting on it and who is not reporting on it and who the stakeholders were in, in, not reporting on it kind of speaks loudly too. Um, so, you know, how, who is owning, I, I don't know the whole chain of command of who are the shareholders who own bits of the media, but also own the freight railroad companies. And, um, there's a lot at stake for, for these, these people who, who own all these companies, you know, um, that this comes up often when you start getting really into this stuff. Who's not reporting on things? Do you have other examples of that? Well, I mean, all of these, all off the top of my head, all of these, all of these sites, 
you know, were, were affected by, by the sort of, by the journalism of their time, you know, um, in New York, you had the, you had the Hearst papers that didn't want to report on standard oil. I think I'm getting that right. It was, it was the Hearst papers that didn't, I could be getting that a little wrong, but the, there, there was something like that. Like there was the, the people who owned standard oil had a stake in the Hearst papers. You know, when, when, when these, when these first leaks happen. So it's a little dodgy on that. I'm not quite sure if I have a good example of that, but that's, that's certainly something that you think about when you read this stuff. Yeah. That's one of the things that, that, um, you'd have to research it all the time. I mean, you'd have to be on top of who owns what all the time. It's kind of like media outrage. Like when someone's getting canceled, it's like, I don't know who's getting canceled because I don't know everything everyone said. I don't really care, you know, but this is just one of those things that you can just live in that world. Yeah. And living in that world is exhausting. I mean, I used to read what 600 RSS feeds a day, look, trying to scour that for just needles of information. It's, it's very hard to do. And, you know, the nature of the blogs and, and I don't know how it is now, but you know, the nature of social media blogs and news outlets is, you know, everyone's hearing a rumor and then trading it up the ladder um, to higher and bigger and bigger outlets. So you end up with a lot of repeated information, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. And everyone's on Twitter getting into the same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and um, I forgot where I was going with that, but it, it, Oh, I remember what I was going to say. It's like, that's one of the reasons why, I've, well, oh, first it's so unbelievably exhausting to be constantly trying to do that every single day. Uh, for somebody who does it for a living, let alone like, you know, normal people are not going to do that because they got all kinds of other problems to do, you know, issues. They got to take their kids to, to school. They got to care for their, their aging parents. They have to pay a mortgage. You know, it's like they got, they got real world problems, you know, yeah, like living, living a full life, like yeah. not just like living inside of like this information. Yeah. You know, which I, is I, not healthy. It's not healthy to be on Twitter uh, all day long. Yeah. I, I mean, as someone who's also taken a lot of psychedelics, I kind of also see that. You like, say also, as if you assume I have. <laughs> I've listened to your show. <laughs> and, and I find that, I find that like that sort of opened me up as a young person to like be by being interested in so many different things um, that I, I, maybe I guess I could inhabit that world fully. But I don't want to like that art. Who is that artist who is who's really great? He used to draw these like bubbles, like these information um, webs. And they were like these huge drawings. They were like, who owned what? Who's connected to the Bush family? And oh, what is, what is that? That's, that's interesting. I'll, I'll find it and send you a link. Yes, I forgot to mark something. He, he, he kind of had a moment here. But in the end, he killed himself. And I don't know anything about his personal life, like maybe why or why he killed himself but i can guess inhabiting that world all the time blood. what's up I, I, it's a lot i found that you know it's like um yeah when i'm in that i get i get pretty dark and i think somebody uh somebody on twitter responded to one of my tweets i think a couple of years ago or was on instagram and i was actually really um kind of moved by it in a way where they were saying it's like you know it's like the, the way that you've been on social media it's kind of like um is what in Lord of the Rings, you know, there's this character that's constantly scrying the efforts or Saruman, I think is constantly scrying the plans and efforts of the enemy all day long in his crystal ball until he becomes corrupted by it. And, and, um, mm. you know, brought over to the dark side. And it's like, that's obviously, you know, dramatic, but I think there's a certain truth to that in the sense that, 
if you meditate on something, you become it. And meditating on that level of corruption and malfeasance and trying to insight, it's never going to end because there's always more. Um, and you it can't does. tune it out. You know, it's like, I can't, I can't take it when people are just like, well, I don't read the news because it's all negative. And it's just like, well, that is just totally irresponsible. Uh, <laughs> although I do understand it with some people because it's just like, you know, it's like, they, yeah. you know, it is, it is negative. But I think that like, in order to inhabit that space, you have to have some type of spiritual practice, at least some type of meditation practice so that you can kind of like see the humor in it at least, or at least it, to some extent, have a sense of emptiness or insubstantialness about it where it's like you can to some extent see it as as illusion as well oh, that's interesting like so so like um that's the sort of that's that's the psychedelic training where i'm like yeah but i do see the cosmic joke that we're yeah, all, yeah, exactly. that we're all not going to be alive to to watch it all play out and it's like tragic and it's so tragic it's sad like when you have that laughing fit on psychedelics because at some point you're like, oh, none of it really matters. Once you've let go and you sort of just like, you know, think about it in the, the you know, the broad view. I, yeah, I love right. that. I love that. I think that's great. What? I, I think it's like none of it matters, but I mean, you should still do something, but you just can't like, you can't take it on the chest so much that it kills you. You know, you've got to have a bit of a light touch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I like what you said about, um, about inhabiting something so long that you meditate on it, that you become it. I think of like someone like, um, you know, like those, those sort of like journalists who become right wing, even though they weren't, they start off as like lefty journalists investigating stuff and they end up like inhabiting. I'm thinking of like a Glenn Greenwald maybe, or like maybe what someone like- the deal with Glenn Greenwald? Cause I know that he, he, he is constantly kind of on Fox news and he's become like, a bet noir of, of people on the left, but like, you know, he, he's, well, he seems like somebody who's run by spite, but I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not aware of where he's been at since Snowden, which was just heroic. But yeah, I thought that was that exactly. That was amazing. That film, the, 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 the work they did, um, amazing. But like, because people I, also I think accuse Julian Assange, the people accuse Julian Assange of being like a right wing Trump stooge, and it's like, really? You know, it's like, I, I don't understand that. And the same thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of these sort of public figures. I guess like the, the, the left punches so much on them that they end up just becoming like embraced by the right wing because they're getting beat up for not being perfect um, culture warriors, you know? Yeah, that's a major, that's a major failing on the, on the um, left. I mean, like, like I used, well, I'll, I'll, I'll look at this from the flip side. I mean, it's like, I used to be like so critical about the as Trump says, Russia, Russia, Russia narrative, everyone who doesn't agree with the DNC party line is a Russian operative. But like, th there is some truth to that. I mean, there's just so, so obvious, there are obviously people who are bad actors, and are just acting out of, uh, you know, either being paid by uh, foreign state media, or just spiteful. And I think that um, anyone, anyone who's a defector, whatever they're defecting from too, is 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 um, at risk for that. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, very true. And that's, let me ask you something. I've been thinking about this since, you know, I, I was, I was listening to a lot of your podcasts a few weeks ago and I was thinking about like asking you if, um, if activism is magic, um, because it seems like an area where this could overlap. Like it's like, it's like willing something into being so hard through like this sort of like, like it's like a working of several people. Yeah. 
you know yeah, absolutely do, doing like i mean everything's magic right i mean that's like the glib answer it is true but you know with activism specifically or you know as, as crowley put it uh magic is causing change in, to occur in conformity with will um so with activism and and i think that i'll put it this way you know that that's a that's a kind of uh that's a kind of border that I've been on my entire, that's a point I've been trying to make my entire professional career, particularly in the two thousands, you know, it's like I came of age during, um, as a writer, as a political thing, you know, as a, somebody who's engaged in politics and as a magician during the Iraq war. And my, my, mm. my being is permanently shaped by that of, of, and being so angry at what happened that it was just like, okay, like there's gotta be some way to counteract this and and it, that is kind of where that's how I, when i met jen that's where i kind of ended up going down this this uh rabbit hole of magic and then my first book generation hex was very much about merging those th two things together and um i think that i'll put it this way i think that if act and you know i've been making this point for a long time i think that if activists saw what they did as magic and were much more um focused or and i think just people on the left in general were much more focused and disciplined about what they were doing for instance picking one thing that they want to happen instead of 67 things in a list that all need to happen that are all interconnected just that one change of, of focused will would would do wonders you think so i i i agree with this i i got very interested in crowley and um not to the degree I, I wouldn't consider myself a magician or or anything you're this is clearly your territory or in a way I, i'm not very knowledgeable about but it's something i was really was interested in liked and uh i only read the one book on crowley perdurabo which i don't even know if it was a guy liked it but i don't know if it was a good one or considered it's pretty, a good, it's pretty good yeah um but i i i think that there's some truth to that it's but are are you suggesting that like the left could work in like um like together by saying look i'm gonna i'm gonna work towards this one thing if there's 67 things to do you know you're gonna work on yeah. you know climate and i'm gonna work on race and you were you know and down the line we uh in in the capacity of magic yeah, I think that one thing that you learn, magic is just like electrical engineering or some or physics or something like that. What I mean by that is <clears throat> magic shows you that, you know, the, the fastest point between two things is always a straight line <clears throat> or to use another metaphor. Um, if you're trying to do something in your life, you have limited time. You, like we all have very, very, and I become much more aware of this as I get older. We have very, very, very limited power, time, energy. You know, energy goes down as you get older. Um, uh, responsive other responsibilities go up, and um, you know, we all have, we all have very, very limited time, energy, and and so forth. It's like people look at you know fictional magic, and it's all you know wizards throwing fireballs around and things like that. And it's like, well. In a sense, that's what it is. It's just that the energy you're using is not some mystical energy. It's just like your normal life energy. And if you look at anyone who's been successful at literally anything at literally any time in history, they have just drilled down on that one thing until they've been successful at it and, and not 
you know, splintered off their efforts into 17 different directions. Um, you know, a classic example would be, uh, I don't know, Thomas, well, this may be apocryphal. Let's not get into specific examples, but, but, um, you know, we can all think of people who have been very successful, who just like they monomaniacally pursue one thing for maybe decades, you know, without any expectation that it's ever going to pay off. And then that's what it takes to, to, that's what it takes to make a dent in anything. And yeah. so, you know, it's like, I, I don't, what do I describe myself as left now? I mean, I feel very alienated from where, you know, what people call the left now. Uh, I, I still have, you know, the same political beliefs I did in my twenties. It's just that I feel very alienated from the political landscape currently. But I mean, the thing that I think of, it's like, I was at Occupy LA in 2012 and it was like, this is amazing. It's focused, it's clear, it's concise. And then the next thing it's like, they're having this meeting and it's like, well, we need to get like a manifesto together. And it's like, literally like 67 things are on it. Or when I went to the, you know, the, the protests of the Republican National Convention in 2004 or the protests against the Iraq War in London in 2004, which was the biggest protest in history at that time. Um, you know, you see like people tacking on every or the 1999 WTO, WTO protests. It's like you see people tacking on every possible conceivable issue to it. It's like, no, just focus on the one, th you know, pick one thing that is achievable and drill on it until you achieve it. And I don't think you need to call that magic. I mean, magic is just a largely a metaphor for thinking about how you use your, your limited time on this planet. Um, I mean, it's like, it's like, if you're trying to punch through cardboard, push one nail through, don't push 67 nails through. Cause then you're never going to get through the cardboard with 67 nails. Um, but <clears throat> magic has a, um, a connotation with phenomenology. Like, yes, I, I understand it as you do is like um electrical engineering right like it's just but <clears throat> there's an element to it that i don't fully understand but i think i believe it because i've seen it play out in synchronicities and and, and things that happen in a person's life that lead you to believe that something is happening here and i don't understand it but it's very real like something in a room like a vibe right like a like you just, you know, you ever go in a room and it's like a sinister vibe or like um, that, that it, it is electric on some level. It is energy, but I don't know um, enough about it that there's a phenomena at play that we as humans probably just don't understand. Yeah, all of that is absolutely real, too. It's just when I tend to talk about magic and <clears throat> the public audience, I, I try to as much as possible lean on the completely rational um and uh uh pragmatic end of it yeah and i guess that's the point that's that's the point of like i guess i was i was curious on your thoughts about activism i, I think i was act, more interested in the sort of irrational view of it you know awesome. like the irrational point of being like like i guess i was interested and i think you did answer it is that like, the take on all these people working so hard and willing something to existence is like something just beyond just the hard work you know just beyond the focus that at some point something else happens uh the like an energy shift or something and i i i think that's very interesting and i don't know a whole lot about it but i, I think that that's there yeah i think in this case and this is what i would tell my students at, at magic.me also i i i don't think that it's 
in that case, or let me put it this way. What I, what I kind of tell people is if you're able to harness a hundred percent of your being towards anything, you will over extended period of time, be able to do things that other people to all intents and purposes look like magic to other people. And the reason is not that you've got some like supernatural power. It's that you're fully, fully using your natural power. And this is not, I mean, it's similar to, but it's not like using a hundred percent of your brain. Cause we now know that that's not a scientific thing. <laughs> right. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of, same, up. yeah, it's kind of the same idea though, where it's like you're harnessing everything that you do towards a goal. Um, the majority of people, and now more than ever, are just like chaff in the wind you know they're 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 thrown about through a million electronic distractions every day and um you know they have no overriding purpose in life they have no and and that's fine i mean most people exist largely to um perpetuate and preserve this what is and that's necessary but um you know and it's, as long as they're not actively destroying things that's fine but um, change causing change requires more and it, and, and this is kind of the sense of people think about sacrifice and magic. It's like, yeah, you, you do have to sacrifice. Activists have to sacrifice quite a lot, you know, yeah. you know, activists yeah. in a way sacrifice so many other things they could be doing in their life to pursue this goal that is probably not going to benefit them personally at all. So that, that's one, that, that's very beautiful. And that's very beautiful. You know, it's a very beautiful way to live, like in the service of something bigger. Um, I think it's rewarding in a way that isn't obvious. Um, that's a, that when you when you talk to activists, they, some are driven by ego, but the majority of them seem to me to be, and this is just completely subjective from my experience, but they seem to be um, motivated by sort of religious, even religious, maybe it's not the right word, but a belief in what they're doing that's yeah. bigger than them. And that, that does seem to me to, to be what I understand to be magic, you know? Yeah, um, I think so. And I think that element of, I mean, that I, I feel like that's necessary in the case of activism, like that belief in some type of higher power. And that could just be like, that there's justice in the universe. I mean, like that's a very compelling belief right there, or that even if there's not justice, that human beings can make justice possible. That's very compelling. And that that's something bigger than the day-to-day, -day, you know, grind of and and wearing and wear and terror of of being an activist. Um, but you know, it doesn't have to, you know, magic is just this thing, uh, you know, belief in something higher. Chris Hedges is a good example. You know, he's a, a he's a priest, right? But he's he's been uh an activist and a journalist for for decades on this stuff. So I think that um, and this is one of the most powerful when it's when it's done in this way. This is one of the most powerful things about religion, and it's traditionally, particularly in America, been one of the most powerful things about um, the progressive side of Christianity. Is um, or in many ways the Catholic Church throughout history. You know, not all obviously, but in some ways, it's like this belief in a higher power allows people to do things. Um, or to push back against the terrestrial authorities or power structures in a way that uh, is much more potent and, and sustainable. I've, I've become I've become interested in the idea. I use the word interested a lot. I guess I have a lot of interest, but I've, I've become interested in the in the idea of the role violence plays. Um, I think of like you know the civil rights struggle and the Black Panthers or the eco terrorists. Um, the, the the fact that like 
the 20th century where activism really worked, um, there was an extreme position that we were talking about there earlier, the sort of extreme position. I think that book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and like the sort of radical element of it, um, and and how that plays into, into the broader strategy of activism. And sometimes I do feel angry enough if I can get myself worked up enough to fully embrace it. Um, oh, as this is a public podcast, I do not in any way condone violence. Uh, but uh, I will say that, you know, it's like, look, if you, if you look at the history of the world, the history of the world is violent struggle. But I'll also respond to this specific point with a counterpoint, which is the history of um, activist movements getting crushed in America has also been uh, the police or federal uh, law enforcement inciting violence so that they can be crushed. Yeah, but in in some cases, they, their violence was the only alternative left. Um, What's an example? Well, I, I think of I think a civil rights got incredibly violent. I mean, yes, the, the Dr. King was incredibly persuasive to people, but Malcolm X had to take the other position, you know, and it's still going on. There's still there's still violence. Um, you know, this is early Malcolm X before, you know. Yeah. I, I think that I'll put it this way as a student of history. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I even consider myself an activist right now. I, mean, I just do my thing. Yeah, um, me too. I, I, but it's just, it's an area that, that this, this germane to this conversation. About yeah, I, 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 I think that, that, um, as a student of history, you know, I make, obviously am not, do not condone violence. I make no prescriptions. I, I, I really don't. Um, but uh and i'm my, my mind is just not geared to be that engaged in events um to even be kind of in that thought process of thinking through things like that um but i think that looking at things from a broader perspective and as a student of history you know i think the liberal position of like oh like violence is always wrong is just demonstrably false looking at history i mean like like uh, history often turns on violence, but I will say it's like, usually it turns for the worse. Uh, and revel yeah, yeah. Because the state always, is always, the state is always going to be stronger. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the state is, well, the state is always going to be stronger and will counter attack. And if you're successful in dissolving the state, then you're really fucked because, uh, you know, it's like, I've, I've talked a lot on this podcast about there's a, um, a book called Bloodlands, which is a history of of the just the unbelievable violence in in Eastern Europe in the World War II period uh, between the Soviet Union and Germany, and it's like you know I've, I've watched so much of this guy's stuff, and and he's he's a uh, kind of involved in the uh, historical overview of the Ukraine conflict as well, Timothy Snyder, and he makes this point where this was kind of in response to Trump in January sixth, where he was like. You know, look, it's like like the point at which the killing begins where genocide begins is when the state fails, you know, mm -hmm. or the state, if the state is successfully overthrown, that's when that's when the mass killing begins. And that's just true throughout history. It was true in the French Revolution. You know, it's like uh, so I'm not so uh, hasty on things like that. And I do think that, you know, we've seen things in the last few years where people are like, you know, uh, committing terrorist acts or lighting themselves on fire, you know, on the, in Washington, DC. And it's kind of like, well, 
what does what does that really accomplish? I'm not sure. It, right. It, that's 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 where that's that's the area that that's that's interesting, right? Because if you look at um, yeah, yeah, like if you if you look at like oftentimes when there's like um an attempt on the government, like you look at January 6th, there's usually the the task of getting that far is so daunting that there's not no a particularly not a particularly compelling attempt, but yeah, right, right. This is kind of this is kind of a straw man argument here, but the yeah. but the fact that there's there's no plan in place after, right? You got in there. Now what did you take over? I mean, like, the, like it's it's like oftentimes the violence doesn't come with an end game that's really thought out. Sometimes it does. I mean, like the Russian Revolution, you know, they killed the czar and, <clears throat> and they instituted, you know, they had a plan which was to institute institute communism. And you know, within a few decades, it was just purging people who were considered to be in opposition to that system. So, um, just you know, if you look at any of these big events. And you set the politics aside and just analyze them from the perspective of just pure human suffering. It always gets worse. Um, I can yeah. outside of maybe like the like Vaclav Havel, like the Velvet Revolution in, in Czechoslovakia or something like that. Like uh, I can't think of like or maybe like the Orange Revolution in like the Netherlands, like many hundreds of years ago. It's like I can't really think of any examples of nonviolent state change. Yeah, yeah. Um that's yeah that, that sounds right to me and the, the way the global order was before the sort of global connectivity is is you know that's really context dependent yeah um, you'd have to fight a lot of it online and you know it's it's just a different global order now i don't know yeah it's, i want to make i want to think about i want to make a caveat to that i just realized which is just like all of that aside, I mean, just like from a historical perspective and a position of logical accuracy, when it's like super liberal people get like really whiny and say that like violence is never the solution. It's like, well, what they're really saying there is I quite like the way that the state uses violence on my behalf right now. <laughs> I would like that violence to continue. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like even if you think about like arguments about like you know it's like what is what is gun confisc uh, uh, gun control or um even taxation i don't want to go to like super libertarian here but it's like even to make strong arguments on behalf of gun control or let's just say gun control or higher taxation it's like what are you saying you're saying that men with guns should go to i want men with guns on my behalf i don't want to get my hands dirty but i want men with high powered guns to go to your house on my behalf and take your things or kill you right it's like, how is this a nonviolent position? Right, right. It's it's very it's again, this is like not thought out. I think I think that there's there's an idea that, you know, it's like when we were talking about super fun sites and that, you know, the idea we're going to go to the government and this needs fixing. So that's the role of government, right? That this is like beyond our capacity to deal with it ourselves. It's the government's role is to keep us safe. OK. Um, but then there seems to be, there seems to be a very selective, at least in the sort of liberal is the sort of liberal, sort of online left I've seen. I'm not incredibly online, um, so I don't know. But it seems to be a sort of selective use of violence um, regarding. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you mean specifically? I guess I'm thinking about property and policing, and. Um, 
you know, everyone's super real lefty until it's their own shit. That's, that's, you know, <laughs> until it's their own stuff. Right. Like, you know, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of like stuff like defund the police and like, you know, I just don't think it's very well thought out for the most part. No, it's not. I mean, like in California, it was like, okay, it's like, we want to, you know, it's like at, at one time, I don't want to go too down this rabbit hole, but it's like, it's just, in, just infuriating. It glitches my brain out where it's like mm-hmm. in California in 2020, the two arguments happening at the same time, by the way, in the middle of, of, of an effing zombie apocalypse, um, on one side, it's, um, okay, there should be a hundred percent gun control. No one should have guns, but the police. And on the other side, it's, we should defund the police. It's like, okay, so where does that leave us? You know, it's like no one, there's no recourse to self-defense or even self-protection or protection period. Um, and I know that I'm oversimplifying some of these issues, but it's just, it, it's not well thought out. I think a broader point to make here, whether it's America or the rest of the world or just history in general, is that the nature of existence is violence. Everything is violence. And the only reason that we don't think things are violence is because, you know, I don't know everyone who listens to this podcast, but I think, you know, at least you and I, I mean, the, the, the only reason why we don't think of things as constant violence is the fact that we live in a wealthy enough um, society that that is our violence is outsourced to other people and we can pretend our hands are clean, but the, the nature of the, re, the nature of reality is vi- or the nature of real reality. Yeah. The nature of reality, the nature of human society is violence. And, um, that's just how it is. And, you know, is the state violent? Yeah. It's like, does the state use violence in ways that, uh, are, are abusive? Yeah. And that's a bad situation. However, um, the state no longer having a monopoly on violence, which is kind of the role of the state is way worse, is way worse. It's like, if you think this, you know, the, the things that the, the violence, the state meets out is bad and it is bad. Wait till you see the, the, the alternative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we all have to deal with our own violence in, in a very personal way. You know, I've, I don't know if I've done any martial arts or anything like that. I walk around, I walk around the city with like, there's the, the threat of violence whenever you have this many people is always going to be lurking. You know, my mom, my mom's from the Bronx. She always carried a knife. She's like 70 years old, still carries a knife around Florida, you know, and it's like, it's just like what, you know, I mean, you know what you see you see enough shit you 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 start to internalize some of that violence i feel it myself yeah and uh same i mean i've done years of self-defense training in various ways and i felt i had to when i lived in los angeles and when i lived in new york and uh, i've been uh, the victim of violence a few times so i think that um you know it's still nothing compared to like living in ukraine or something like that sure this is all relative yeah but you know, life is conflict, life is struggle. And, you know, that's just how it is. And and I think that this is why I find people who present themselves as nonviolent a little bit disingenuous, because let me just put it this way, unless you're willing to go through the entire supply chain that brings you everything that you own, 
and remove anything that relies on human slavery and coercion, which is, by the way, everything we're currently using to record this podcast, uh, let alone oil, let alone, you know, so much of our stuff lies, you know, has slavery in its supply chain. It's like, I don't want to hear about being nonviolent. Yeah, I, I thought about this. I remember thinking about this um, watching Occupy. I remember thinking like people are just they're using these products of venture capitalism. There was when the iPhone first started to come in. It was when we first started really seeing a lot of iPhones and people were making videos and stuff. And I was thinking like, you know, you couldn't complete, you could police the corruption in, in these corporations, what they're trying to do. There's a sentiment behind a lot of the activism I like, um, that you have to sort of discard some of the hypocrisy and some of the, the posturing and bullshit that comes with it you know and that's that's something that's just a fact of life you know you just can't act holier than thou what's up you mean in a sense that you, you should just not act holier than thou yeah that was what i was getting at before about being a preacher you know <laughs> about like not being very careful to not be a preacher it's a little hard when you know things but you realize when you know things you actually don't know a whole lot you know yeah. there's the aristotelian position yeah, of like, I go ahead. Just the more you know, the less you really know. The, the more you learn, you don't know. Yeah, I, I agree, and and certainly just the more I pay attention to and study reality and the way that it's put together and the way that society is just this intricately. Society is not chaos. Society is this intricately constructed, uh, uh, beautiful, like multi-level uh, puzzle that has been constructed by thousands of years of layered on human effort. And everything in society functions for a reason and interlocks with everything else, even things that don't make sense to us necessarily on, on, the, on the surface. So, um, but that said, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't try to change it because activism, um, social change, um, e even, you know, violently perhaps, well, I want to watch my words here, but like, you know, challenging the system is part of the system. Yeah, yeah. Like part of any system. It's like, you know, that that's how the system moves forward. But you're not coming at it from outside of the system. It's like like the system needs some roughage in it to keep it on point. And if you just look at the last 20 years, look at how much positive change has happened. If you look at the last 200 years, look at how much positive change has happened. Even in our lifetimes, you know, like the conversations that are being had about about race, for instance, it's like, you know, like tremendously positive um, change has, has happened. And there's always going to be pushback and there's always going to be um, violence that goes along with that. And that doesn't mean that that's, by the way, violent, counter counter revolutionary violence as well. We've seen a lot of that. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I'm in Texas. They just had the, they're having this trial right now where this ex, uh, you know, this ex uh, military cop just was texting people, you know, I want to go out and shoot a Black Lives Matter protester. And then he did two weeks later and the jury found him guilty. And now the governor is trying to intervene and, and get him off. So it's like, yeah, I mean, like these entrenched systems of violence are very real. And I don't think that people have any illusion about them. So um, I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say, but. Uh, I'm following you though. I mean, just, it's, it's, it, it just speaks to the complication we we're just talking about. It's, it's, I, I've, I've become interested in in all of these aspects to it because you can't just really take like one aspect you become you become you start investigating 
environmental disasters, if you find yourself rethinking a lot of different things and, and, but you're right. I mean, like you have to, you have to take in, um, some of that hypocrisy and, and compartmentalize it. You have to. Yeah. I think that like, I was going to respond earlier. It's like, you know, there were so many hypocritical and disingenuous things about Occupy, but I was involved in Occupy. I was down at LA city hall, like for two weeks. And, um, you know, like that, that argument was very prevalent at the time. It's like, well, you know, you're doing this on an iPhone, but it's like the counter response to that is like, why wouldn't you use every tool at your disposal? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the other, that but, yeah. And the other, but the other thing that I, you know, realized while I was there, cause I, I had spent so much time in, in, in India and Nepal, Nepal prior to that, it's like, you know, it's like, I'm kind of looking at all these people that, um, you know, even then were younger than me, <laughs> sadly. Um, you know, who are, who are involved in Occupy and a lot of them are, you know, it's like, what's their beef? It's like, well, their beef is that they're making $30,000 a year as a graphic designer and they feel that that's unfair. And it's like, you know, the point I was making to people that nobody wanted to hear is like, look, if you make over $30,000 a year in 2012 terms, you are in the global 1%. You know, it's like, I've been in India watching people die of poverty. You know, I've, I've, you know, had a conversation with a guy in India once uh, where he's just like, you know, I make a dollar a day brutally washing, you know, in, in hot steam rooms, washing clothing. And every day I would just think about killing myself. So because like, you know, that I would be worth more to my, the people I care about dead. So, um, I, don't I think, think about have any conception of how bad, uh, bad a lot of people in the world have it. Yeah. And th there's, a, there's a level of disingenuousness on the left about, uh, how bad things actually are versus how bad, um, cause like in order to have this sort of persona as an activist, a lot of times people have to make it sound worse than it is. And, uh, to make it sound, there's been no progress in any of these areas over the last decades and it's bullshit, you know, it's been, a it lot is. Of yeah. And, and opposed. But, but that said, a lot of that progress has been made because of activism, you know, yeah, like, like that's, but, but to, you know, the five day work week, for instance, the 40 day work week, you know, it's like pretty, pretty blatant things. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of like, it's not, and that could be interpreted as an argue for being complacent and it's not, it's an argument for pushing forward. It's like, Hey, we made some progress. We got to keep it moving. We can't get stuck. You know, we can't become complacent because we've made progress. That's all. There's always this sort of like dumb argument that's like, because of, there's never been any progress. Things are still the same. You know, I, I just think it's only that's not true. It's not true. And part and of, part I, I think of it's also, go ahead. No, just, just part of it. Like, like I just said, everything part of, part of what we're doing is moving it forward by not being complacent, but also recognizing that like, you know, the sixties didn't get it all wrong. They all didn't become like yuppies. It was all, you know, it's, it's, it's oversimplification. It's generalization. It's also oversimplification to like think that there are some monolithic bad guy side. It's like a lot, you know, a lot of the people, you know, it's just people wherever you look. And, you know, it's like, even like that point about people in the sixties becoming yuppies. It's like, whenever you encounter somebody and you think that they are a solid thing, you're only seeing somebody at one point on the line of their entire life. And if you think about how many changes and you've gone through in your life, it's like people are long processes of change. 
And uh, so you don't necessarily know who you're dealing with or or who they've been in the past or why they've come to the conclusion of where they are, where why they are where they are or who they're going to become. So I think that's it's really yeah. not to essentialize people. But I think that there, there really is a kind of to your earlier point about magic. I think there is a, a kind of a magic process to point at here, which is like if you try to change one thing in society, pretty soon you kind of understand i mean immediately you come up against the wall of why that's not possible and um if you get you know then people get frustrated and resort to violence well that i think um is a less much less compelling uh, option than you begin to look at the you begin to try to understand the entire system or you, maybe you begin around with the system of interlocking um the the system of interlocking systems around the thing that you're looking at and then maybe that expands out to like, well, how does how does the country work? How does the political process work? How does the business process work? How does the journalistic process work? How do human beings think? How does psychology work? And then ultimately, you have to like kind of end up at this point where you're, you know, you start off trying to enact reform in a system, and then you end up um, trying to seek, you know, quote unquote union with God. You're trying to seek union with the entire system. You're trying to understand the entire system. And that's, that's a, a spiritual growth process. Um, and, uh, I think it's only from that position of understanding as much of it as you possibly can, that you can, um, affect change. And I think an even a concrete way of saying that is like, you know, you're not going to be able to talk to the people that you need are able to make the change without speaking their language. And you're not going to be able to speak their language without understanding their language and how they think. So, and just that process will unite you with them in a, in a positive way where it's like, well, now you understand where they're coming from. Now you understand this thing that you're interacting with. That's a very magical process. Yeah. And, and I, I imagine that the magical process is just the act of like becoming like whoever you're going to be in your different, you know, like, like you just, you really just said it. I mean, a lot of it is who you are in that moment, you know, you just you can't it's it's very difficult to make those assumptions one of the, one of the things that you were just when you were talking about this sort of the the I, I was thinking before we got before we got started i was like reading some of the uh some of the journalism around east palestine um the, the, what we were talking about earlier the, the disaster there and i was reading a lot of the journalism around it and it, the, the bit of business about how they were extras in the, this, we didn't, we didn't talk about this yet, but the extras inside the, uh, the Don DeLillo white noise film. Did you hear about so, this? Yeah, I remember I saw something about that tangentially, but, but talk about that. As I understand it, that they shot the, in East Palestine or outside of East Palestine, they shot some of the white noise, uh, film adaptation, which fought, which involved, uh, I've read the I read the novel in college and I really don't remember it. Yeah, me too. But, I don't. But, it, but there was some bit of business with like a, a a dark cloud, like a like it had something to do with like a a like a a maybe it was a chemical spill or something like that, and that these people were extras in the film, and then here's this thing that's so similar to it wow. in real life. Dude, I shouldn't laugh. That's it's like funny. yeah. But that's, isn't that fascinating, right? Isn't that speak to like oh, yeah. the sort of synchronous? I get why like it's a great journalistic plot point, and because when when it was coming around, because it's it's fascinating, right? Like that <clears throat> that sort of synchronicity around events, and I think that there's some that kind of gets at some of this sort of complexity 
the, the circles on circles of everything in all at once yeah. you know, in, in, in these sort of discussions, these sort of, you know, uh, these, when we, when we look at things like, you know, activism, or we look at like, you know, th- the power positive thinking and all this stuff, there's all this other stuff at play. You just can't see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's funny because that, in a way, is kind of like what a lot of what a lot of postmodern literature was trying to point at. Um, yeah. yeah, it also points at like you, like you said earlier, like the kind of the cosmic joke behind things. It points that everything is interconnected. It points that everything is at the fact that everything is repeating patterns. Um, yeah, I love that. I mean, there's I can think of tons of times that things like that have happened. You get a you get a glimpse. Sometimes you get a glimpse to the synchronicity of events, to the sort of, you know, and I, I think there's magic in that, you know, that 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 synchronicity, that that phenomena of not being able to make that, that something like that would would just line up exactly in that place at that time. Because that train could uh derail anywhere. Yeah. You know. Like, unlike the, the sites that are in my book, these were like dumping pollution sites. These were mining sites. This is where, you know, where, where oil leached into the ground. These are just like, these, these are from industry. All of these events are from industry. And that train could have derailed anywhere. Yeah. That's, that's a fascinating. It is fascinating. I mean, you can definitely go on some tangents from that, try to explain why that is. I mean, I think that, and, and these things point to like different levels of, of understanding, perhaps. I mean, it's like, the first thing is like maybe you could go to like the sympathetic magic position where it's like oh well somehow those actors enacting that drama there caused the actual thing to happen or you can say something like well artists are you know they're going into these trance states so artists are kind of tapping into the the timeline or able to see the future even if they're not aware of it or you can kind of come to the position that i'm i'm at where it's just like why did it happen because it's funny (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right right that's 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 kind of my first instinct but i mean all of those all of those magical positions um the act of willing it is kind of uh, i don't know if i would buy that because I think about all the movies that are made and like every day i'm out there on the streets shooting tv shows every day and this is yeah. Just, I'm not suggesting I believe that. By the way, I'm I'm suggesting yeah, 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 somebody yeah. could, from a a certain level of understanding, could come at it and and say something like that. Sure, sure, I could see that. Yeah, I, I that that'll never not be fascinating. Those it's little bits of glimpses into the in, into the um. I hate when people say the the term glitch in the matrix. It almost like <laughs> implies that like it it, it kind of it's for some reason for me makes me cringe a little bit like it's like i don't really buy that we're a simulation no i don't either and and it also makes it inorganic and it also says that something is glitched or something is wrong rather than this is just kind of the way reality works maybe (laughs) right that this is right actually this is right on time you know this this train was supposed to derail here you know it's it's like a a pre-design right like it it presupposes pre-design like there's design elements and I think it's cor- it's a corny metaphor too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's amazing that people are still using matrix metaphors after what <laughs> right, five right. years later. Um, well, yeah. There's something like there's there really is something about magic and and pagan neo paganism that it comes out of as as well of of um, at least the modern magic movement um, of this idea of paganism or druidry or focus on nature and and my take on that is 
just a place that I got to in my life and my own process is look, you know, like all these sides, like red, blue, whatever, you know, political standpoints, whatever culture war, like this is all human nonsense. Like everything that humans do is inherently insane and nonsensical. Like human beings are, are incapable of perceiving reality directly. They're incapable of articulating reality correctly. Um, they miscommunicate more than they communicate. Just look at any relationship and misunderstandings that happen within it. It's like people are, it's a miracle that people haven't all murdered each other by now. So human beings are inherently faulty and everything that they do, as far as I'm concerned, is ridiculous. Um, so the kind of the idea that one side or ideological position or cultural position or identity is like the, you know, what everyone needs to get behind is just a non-starter for me. My yeah. political position has been since 20, 2010, actually, uh, actually a little earlier, but I clearly articulated it in 2010 is the environment is what's important. And the reason is all that anyone is doing is playing. Everyone's playing games, you know, like people are playing everything that people do is a game. But if you have no game board, then everyone's shit out of luck. So I think that the position for magical activism in the 21st century or just activism period is environment first. I mean, make sure that everyone doesn't die of rare cancers first, and then we can sort everything else out afterwards. Absolutely. I remember being a kid in the 80s and asking my dad, I was like, why is why is the environment um, a liberal position? And he's like, it's not. It's an everybody position. Yeah. And he was right. You know, and I, I still think about that to this day, that it's then we have to depoliticize the environment. That's like should be one of our frontline priorities is like, first off, let's let's stop the fighting over this and just get on the same page that we don't want cancer. And which yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. insane that we have to have this discussion, but that seems to be the case. And I when I was researching my book and I interviewed, you know, like I said, like with the best one of the best guys was the governor when the you know, the best advocates for this this problem in Oklahoma was a Republican governor. You would never think that today, but why not? You know, I mean, why? Yeah. Why? Why can't we? Why not? Exactly. So that's that's something I I think about a lot. And I I won't really engage. I I do like the snark, but I really don't engage like that online. I don't I don't like it. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was very good on the environment when he was when he was the Republican governor of California. I mean, I think, um, yeah, and I think that the reasoning as to why that would be is like, oh, well, the government, the Republicans are are subject to corporate capture. Well, so are the Democrats. You know, it's like they're both subject to yeah. the same corporations. So yeah, and and you also have to be careful not to both sides it because you know one is pretty f- deeper in, and the other side at least has a contingent that is like, no, we're actually not going to take your money. Um, so right, and right, not and exactly a new deal and all of that. Um, you know, right. there's that. So, you know, anyway, I, I think your point, though, of, of the environment being an everybody issue, I mean, that that's the thing to work towards. That's the critical thing. And I think that um, the language matters. Actually, again, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a really good point where he doesn't I think this is a step in the right direction where he doesn't talk about global warming. He talks about pollution because that's a more tangible thing for people and takes it out of the realm of, well, is it real? Is it not? It's, oh, yeah. And also, it, yeah. And it also becomes, I mean, everyone understands pollution. You don't have to explain it. And also it becomes something you can pollution. You can do something about, 
you know, global warming is like a big giant, what the fuck, um, yeah. pollution you can always clean up. So I think that was actually very clever on his part. Um, but the other thing, um, you know, the most popular tweet I have ever had or social media message I've ever had in my entire life, um, or at least on Twitter was I just, it had nothing to do with anything I ever talk about. Of course it was, a, I just put out a tweet where there was a news article like five, six years ago that Alzheimer's had been linked to poor oral hygiene. And that went like, it got like 18 gajillion retweets. And that <laughs> First, I was just like, of course, it would be something that has nothing to do with anything I talk about or benefit me in any, or benefits me in any way. But then I was like, well, this is just such a touch. This is, I mean, this says so much. It's like this issue touches so many people and it's not political and it's heartbreaking for and is terrifying for everyone that it touches. You know, it's like I've had that in my own family. It's like that's something that everyone can get behind going away. I mean, who wants to see their parents forget who they are? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, that's that's like what you were saying um, about about rhetoric matter. You know, it, it matters and it's something that everyone could do. They I, I tend to take a dim view on this and I don't think they will. I think people are too addicted to the rush of of outrage and like and, and outraging each other. And I feel it myself. I'm like, sometimes I read something horrific sure. online and I, I want everyone else to see it. Sure. Yeah. And you I know. like, you know, I'll put some more because I call it eating fire ants. <laughs> right. Right. And I mostly on Twitter, I just mostly engage with music Twitter. I, it's really like oh, that's my, cool. my hobby. It's like what I love. You know? how, how is that? Oh, I love it. I just like, you know, I've, I've discovered so many jams, like through like jazz Twitter, you know, like just oh, wow. so many things I never would have found otherwise. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what? where, mostly mostly in the last few years it's my it, my interest has been in jazz you know uh but uh you know you come out of like there's still you know i came out of punk and hip-hop you know mostly and so you know it's it's naturally i get these labels are kind of annoying but i i find that like most of the people i follow on twitter are are just other heads people are interested in like learning something about you know just That's sharing so cool. I love that. You know, that's, yeah, that's I've noticed that I've noticed that as well. I've noticed that as well. Cause I'm, I'm a huge audiophile, which is another way of saying I'm now middle-aged, but, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I've noticed on like music, YouTube, like I'm sure you've seen this, like people just upload all these rare, obscure albums and like the comments are always so lovely and polite. And it's just like, you know, if you're listening to this, I hope you're, I hope all is well in your world, brother. Yeah, that's where the love is. That's where the love is. It's so amazing. It's like, it really is. Yeah, it's great. Just like finding these old, like, 80s Japanese, like, you know, obscure records and things like that. And then the comments are always just like all love. Yeah, I talked to other crate diggers too, who were like, oh my God, look at this thing I found for $3. And it'll be like some rare thing, you know, it's like some private press. And you're like, holy shit. It's just like, it's a, it's a, just a fun aspect to the internet that I think, you know, we, we, we tend to talk about like the doom and gloom and how shitty this is and that is. But the, the, the real love is in the, um, is on music Twitter and, and places like that. I once saw a tweet. <clears throat> A really funny tweet that was like, when you hit 35, you actually YouTube two opens up, which is just uh, uploads of jazz 
<laughs> Japanese jazz records. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like the only thing keeping me sane during 2020 was just like these like super like prosaic Japanese like ambient albums from the 80s of just kind of like elevator music. It's like I had to listen to that stuff to to keep from losing oh, it. Oh yeah. Like Harumi Hasono's like um Exotica stuff and the yeah, I love all that stuff, man. And yeah, there's every day I try to listen to like five new records a day oh, on average. Funny. New to me. New to me. That could be like just came out or came out in the sixties, you know. Mostly lately, I you know, just this week I've been really on a kick of like Japanese psychedelic rock that I never found. Oh nice. Uh previously. Julian and so the, okay. you know, Yeah, the Jap rock sampler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's those are all huge guides for me. You know, oh, I yeah. refer to them. I love, I love Julian Co. But I love it. I'm, I'm huge on Kraut Rock also. Um, that's like my, my go-to. Um, yeah, well, that's one of mine too. You know, I just got, I just got a, um, I finally achieved my, my decades-long life goal of getting um, Sennheiser 800s. So I've just been jamming on those. So life, life is good with those. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I, I I think like I'm 45, and I think the audiophile thing really kicked in for me about when I turned 40. Okay. Um, I had like I've always had I've always had stereos, but you know, I'm always, but I don't know. At some point, it became very important for me to be able to hear things really well. And you know, I think we came up in the age of like you know cassettes going into CDs, going into shitty MP3s. Yeah. You know? And I kind of lost, I kind of lost, like for a while, I couldn't really, I, I don't know if I was really hearing what I was supposed to be hearing until I really got interested in production. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, I'm out there just trying to make as much money as I can so I could just keep buying records. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing how much, uh, I mean, music that people get now really is like the fast food version of food. Like I'm super into cooking too. And I'm always like shocked, like, when you actually make a full recipe, like how different it is from the mass produced version or like even um, like I recently learned and this will not be news to a lot of people, but I recently learned like I got this a copy of the whole seed catalog and I realized like the vegetables, we vegetables and fruits we see at the supermarket are like 1% of the available yeah. things just because they're the ones that are easily mass uh, produced and shipped. But it's like there's so much weird there's so many weird psychedelic vegetables and fruits out there that no one's ever heard of or i haven't i hadn't heard oh of. yeah it's just like yeah the, i've seen what's what's the whole seed catalog i think i was reading about this is this it, i'm but I'm clear on what it is yeah i'm sure i think it's just a couple of bucks you can i'm sure get it online it's just literally a catalog of seeds that you can get for rare rare vegetables and, and plants and things to to grow so um that are like kind of out That's of great they're like obscure vegetables you know <laughs> so um but yeah right. I think with music it's like like not just mp3s but like how you know how shitty production is now with all the compression and and you know stuff is is met is produced to play in supermarket speakers so yeah yeah little iphone speakers and stuff it it it's it's some of it and then there's also seems to be a movement you know in, in certain hip-hop too to make things bigger and expanded too so there's like these two two branches right and they're all they're going in two radically different directions there's like the real compressed uh they used to call it ringtone rap i don't know what they call it now it was like very like very tinny sounding and then there's the other side that's real big 
like big production, you know, they can do with very little. Um, I love, you know, there's just so, you know, and I do take advantage of living here and going to see things um, when I can going to the shows. Yeah, that, that's, you know, uh, that, that stuff is, a, I'm obsessed with all that stuff and it, it is a, a refuge for me. Um, and yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it's, you, you, it's like, you just, it just happens when you turn 40, I guess. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I don't know what it is either. I mean, I've always been a, I've always like my whole life, I've listened to a lot of music, a lot of different kinds of music and yeah. always tried to challenge myself and, and I've fallen in love so many times along the way, but, um, but as I got older, that never went away. I know like a lot of, a lot of guys around our age, a lot of people around our age, rather, they, it goes away. They like could just yeah. take or leave music. Not me. I mean, I, um, I mean, I'm still imprinted on all the stuff I listened to in my early twenties and late teens. Cause that's just the most imprinted in my brain. But I, I think that like I have Cobas, it's like, I'm constantly just finding it. That's one of the really cool things about now is that you have access to like all music and you can just go down, you know, I was listening to like, uh, you know, uh, Vietnamese bar music from people who were entertaining soldiers in the war, you know, in the sixties, it's just like, this stuff is phenomenal or Cambodian psychedelic music. Um, you can, yeah. everything you can go down. And, and for me, music, for me, music and food are similar in that they're a type of travel. You're traveling around the mm -hmm. world and experiencing life through other people's, um, um, you know, beings that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. That's a beautiful thing about music. I mean, you can feel what other people are feeling. And um, you know, it's a way to learn about the world. Yeah. And like like you were saying, the things that you loved as a young person will always be a part of you. They'll always be there and you'll always return to them. Um there's stuff I like that I, I know objectively I wouldn't like now if I, I discovered it now, but I love it because of being a young person when I discovered it. You know? Like I was thinking the other day, I was like, you know, if I, I, I was like a kid metalhead in the eighties, I was like a grade school metalhead, you know? Um, like if I heard Megadeth today, I'd probably think it was so stupid, but I love it because I was in second grade, yeah. you know, when, when P-Cells came around and I, it, I think it's beautiful. And, but like, if I heard it today, like my tastes change because like we were talking about earlier with like all the other stuff we were just talking about, like you change, you become different and you evolve and you grow you still retain some of, of who you were but not all of it it's complicated and beautiful yeah, for sure and and music is at least for me just so much a part of who i am and the cool thing about audiophile stuff too is you can go back to all that stuff you listen to and hear it in a totally new way and hear things you never heard before um you know when you were listening to megadeth on a cassette you know it's like i'm sure it was yeah different different system and now. some stuff new stuff yeah like you know my, my my living room is mostly geared towards like audiophile stuff but it's something that was recorded like very like shitty still sounds great um <laughs> even on really good speakers like something that was really poorly made you know f you think of like you know they record husker do the zen arcade in one night that's like oh, a double really? record. They did it in one night when the studio time was like cheap and they could get in there and they one take, one take, one take. That's beautiful to me. That's that, that like, they, they didn't need all that other stuff. They didn't need like the full studio Brian Eno of uh, 
<laughs> using the studio. So they just got it, you know? And so are you more of like a, do you, you do more of like um, speakers or headphones? Uh, both, both. I work a lot. I'm away a lot. So I, you know, I have my, um, my job elite speakers, my, my job elite head, headphones, which are perfectly fine for my, uh, there, I, there's a certain amount of audio. There's, there's an audio file thing where I can't, there's, there, it, it loses me at some point because there's things I can't hear because okay. there's things I think other people are hearing, or at least they say they're hearing. Right. I can't right. Hear. right. But, yeah, that, uh, there's a bit of self delusion that, that goes into it. Although that said, I mean, I feel like there's like a, a steep curve going up upwards of things sounding really, really, really better, better, better with everything that you add. And then it's just like the law of diminishing returns for a long, long, long time. And then like, if you get the top end stuff, it's like, holy shit, this is way better again. So I found at least. Yeah. I am. I, at home, I, I have a, a Rotel, a nineties Rotel um, and preamp in my living room. And we have a little farmhouse upstate and I have an old Japanese Sansui up there, which doesn't sound as good, but it's like, you know, this, this, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like, it's, it's my hobby. That's great. Yeah. For me, for me, music, particularly at that level is like virtual reality and it is like going to another universe, you know, and, um, without drugs or, or with drugs. Oh. Yeah, I don't I, I, I don't smoke pot anymore, but I, I think that like it's really with me still. Like, you know, the 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 you know the the perception, the perception shifts. Um I I, I think that like I'm altered, you know, from psychedelics and everything. I don't really yeah. need them anymore. I mean it yeah, would probably I, be good I, to shake the snow globe up, but I it kind of scares me actually. When you get older, yeah, you have the too. world's weight. Oh yeah, no, totally. It's, it's hard. Yeah, like when I was doing, I, I did. I was, I was on for a certain era of my twenties. I think I was high every single day of my life for a long time, and um, now I'm not, and and I haven't been for a long time. But yeah, it's like now if I do psychedelics, it's just like oh, aging. <laughs> it's like right, right. It's like uh, yeah, and you're like failures. <laughs> Yeah, you're like there's there's that, and then there's also like the sort of the, just the you're more aware of the the suffering in the world in a way. Yeah, like in your twenties, it's so easier to do because you have like less to care about, you know. And then as you get a little more world weary, that weighs on me. I mean, yeah. I get much more sensitive to and you know having kids too that changes your brain. So you your your threshold for the world suffering, I think, is a little lower. How did you find um, it? Your brain, and that's you're cutting out. What'd you say? Oh, I said you I said having kids changes your brain. How did you find that it did that? Well, I, I think you become a little more afraid for them. For them, um, you become a little more sensitive to 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 the world. I mean, that's how it worked for me. And I, I spoke to other people who've had children who have experienced this too. Where the sort of you become more sensitive to to um i guess that's that's just the simplest way of putting it is like the suffering seems outsized it seems bigger in the world um because you feel you feel very protective Hmm. of them and it's biological i think it's you know millions of years of you know evolutionary hardwiring to to be this way Hmm. to be protective you know interesting well 
Yeah, but I, I read it, it changes your brain chemistry. I know nothing about brain chemistry, so I couldn't mm. comment on that. Interesting. Your poor, your poor listeners came here for environmental disasters. I know. Uh, well, they came they here stayed, for, they they came stayed here for, for Twitter. They came for a podcast. Uh, this was a great conversation. <laughs> um, I think we're past the two hour mark. So, um, yeah, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, where can people yeah. find it? So uh, tell people where they can find out more about your books and, yeah. the, and also what you, you've got coming up that you're working on, you mentioned. Uh, well, I don't really... I, the only real online presence I have is Twitter, which is ML Nirenberg, M-L-N-I-R-E-N-B-E-R-G. Uh, -E and my book, Earthly D, is available anywhere books are available, on the internet at least. And... Um, I think Feral House likes us to, they used to, I don't know about now, but they, they like us to uh, plug bookshop over Amazon, which I think sounds good. And um, and I, my documentary about Hustler Magazine, my dad, the art director there, that's that was on Epics. I don't know where it plays now, but I think it's all over where I think it could be rented. I do get these little royalty checks sometimes, so I know it plays somewhere. Okay. Um, that's that's about it, you know? I, I try to keep my online footprint small. <laughs> Earth AD is on Amazon. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class, and until next time, hang in there.